We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Stay tuned, as usual, to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. All of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the retweets. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for buying the audiobook. Ah, that I really appreciate. If you want to support the show, you can do that too. So, again, just thanks. Now, on to my guest for today, Stephanie Slocum, founder of Engineers Rising and author of She Engineers, Outsmart Bias, Unlock Your Potential, and Create the Engineering Career of Your Dreams. Stephanie has a degree in architectural engineering and worked as a corporate engineer for 15 years, achieving executive level status. At that point, she realized that she had a passion for helping and mentoring others, particularly women engineers. While still employed, she wrote She Engineers and then quit her job to start her own company to coach and support female engineers. One of her motives is to show her three daughters what is possible. Stephanie says that there are different rules for women in both engineering, industry, and entrepreneurship, and she helps women navigate those differences. She believes it's important for executives to become aware of and check their biases because promotions often get handed out to people who remind them of themselves. Stephanie also explains why the work harder mentality is not necessarily going to help when it comes to being a successful executive or entrepreneur. Now, let's get better together. Stephanie Slocum, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jerry. You are quite welcome. And I wanted to have you on the show because you are doing some really cool stuff with STEM. 
women in engineering and business. It's called Engineers Rising. Of course, everyone knows that I'm an engineer by training. I've got a soft spot in my heart for all things engineering and creation. And I love meeting other engineers that have gone both the engineering and entrepreneur business route because it's <laughs> when we first probably started out in our careers, we never would have thought that we would actually be doing something other than pushing polygons or building bridges or I don't know, whatever us engineers do. But um, before we get into that, uh, let's start off with how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah. And I want to start this off with, if if you are hoping for the story of how uh, the young girl started her lemonade stand at the age of 10, that is not me at all. Um, I really appreciated one of the previous interviews you did with uh, Brooke, I think the 19-year-old who was super inspiring about you know starting her lemonade stand. That is not at all my story. Um, I came up through engineering. I have two engineering degrees uh, in architectural engineering. And I, coming into that career path, I fully intended to stay there and never start my own company. Uh, that was not in my, in my plan. Um, but what I found, so I spent 15 years working in that industry, working my way up. Um, when I resigned from that industry to start this company, I had reached an executive level position. So for some of my some of my background. But what I noticed during that time was that one, a lot of my uh, areas of passion were in coaching and mentoring other engineers. Um, and I also noticed that I was usually or often the only woman on my teams. And that was the case even when I was fortunate enough to find an engineering job working for uh, another woman. And what I learned was that there were different rules to, to the game uh, corporate game, entrepreneurship game, you know, which there's different rules to both of those games um, for women. And what I wanted to do is help other women thrive in this profession. Um, I think engineers, people in STEM, we can design better. We can create better uh, things for our, our audience when we are as representative as the communities for which we're designing. Um, and to be honest, when I started working, so I graduated from college in, in 2002. Um, I was completely blindsided by the fact that, what do you mean my mom didn't solve this problem? Um, and so, and I'm still hearing some of those same stories from the new graduates today. So enough is enough. Um, I also have three daughters. Uh, and so for me, my entrepreneurship journey started with observing all these things, helping other people with them. and doing a side project. So I published a book. I put everything I knew into a book uh, that was a side project while I was still working full-time. Uh, and that book is called She Engineers. I published it while still working full-time uh, for someone else. And six months after uh, I published that book, I had already been asked to do speaking and workshops uh, for engineers, for professional development, that sort of thing. Uh, all non-technical stuff. I resigned from that position and went full-time into my own company, largely because I have a, a passion. Uh, I am a woman on a mission uh, to help normalize women as technical leaders in the field. Uh, and I do that through career and business coaching through my company, uh, where we focus on both helping the, helping the individual women, but also in helping the organizations create 
cultures where everyone with a unique identity is enabled to come up through the system and they don't drop out as all of the many statistics we have uh, about minority genders, minority races, minority identities uh, do in these fields. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's similar for entrepreneurship in general. I mean, if you look at the numbers, I think 2%, 2 2.3% of all venture capital money goes to women. And if you're a woman minority, you're like the 1%, the 2% of the 2%, some crazy statistic where you're like unique, like unique, unique, like the odds obviously stacked against you uh, because most, most of the game in that is male dominated, you know, tall white guys with beards like me. I mean, it's just the way it is. <laughs> it's unfortunate. And that's why one of the reasons this podcast exists. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, because as everyone knows, my late wife, Jane was an entrepreneur in the um, sports publicity market space. And I could tell you stories for hours about how misogynistic and crazy that was <laughs> yep. and, and all the stories she used to tell me. And I remember when I was like, yeah, I'm going to write another book. And she's like, you better figure out how to get the word out about some more, you know, ethical, inclusive and resilient, you know, societies need to rely on a diversity of talents and skills. And since you're the dominant person in the culture, especially the entrepreneur culture, better start talking about this stuff. So I'm like, yes, dear. <laughs> as all as all good good partners will do. You're absolutely right. And, you know, she never got to read the full book, but she inspired a lot of it. And again, the reason why I continue to do the podcast and want to talk with people like you, because one of the things I found, and I've done a lot of education for uh, entrepreneur education for uh, communities, I guess, at-risk youth, underserved communities, generational poverty, you know, places like that, where the thing that has the most resonance, the one like in their gut and in their heart is when they see someone like them doing what they want to do. It is so powerful. In fact, I mean, like I could sit there and talk to them blue in the face about, you need to do this and that and that. They won't listen to crazy Uncle Jari until someone from their community that looks like them, that talks like them, that says, hey, I can do it. Then all of a sudden the world opens up and it's this opportunity, seeing that the opportunity is there, which is why it's so important what you're doing. So how's it been running your own gig? I mean, engineer to entrepreneur-ish, you know, it's tough gig. So what, what are some of the things you've learned? Yeah, I'm sorry. This interview is only 45 minutes an hour <laughs> because I feel like I feel like we could just chat all all oh, day. Oh, we could. Many Absolutely. Days about this. 100. Um, so I would say uh, the one of the top things I have learned is that, uh, particularly for anyone with an engineering or technical background, you kind of come up with this idea. Oh, well, I can just figure out everything myself. Well, guess what? Entrepreneurship is a different type of game. Um, and even if that was true, particularly if you're coming from kind of like a corporate background, like I was, uh, even if that is true in corporate, uh, which I would challenge that it's not true there either, if you want to be successful, it's definitely not true as an entrepreneur. Um, and so I struggled a lot, particularly early in the first year of my company with asking the wrong questions, asking how was I going to figure this out? How was I going to do this? How was I going to learn the tech, the marketing, the sales? 
whatever it was, how I was going to do that. And in reality, I was asking the completely wrong question. I should have been asking, who can help me do this instead of how can I do this? Um, if I had learned that earlier, I probably would have shortcutted dramatically uh, my, my company's ability to create programs, to grow, to start scaling, all of those things. Um, but I think as, because of the technical background, because I had powered my way through everything else prior to that by mantras like, just keep on working hard, just keep hustling, just figure it out. That had made me very successful in uh, when I was working for someone else. And that mindset, like I, I ran into the dark side of that, where you're working tons and tons of hours and you feel like you're not getting anywhere because you're trying to figure it all out all yourself when you don't need to. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, I could just feel the chills when you were saying that in the, the what I call the failure lump in my stomach, just kind of grow into my throat because this is me as an engineering, you know, I can figure anything out. Come on. This isn't that hard. Turns out that some people have unique skills and some people don't, and you should definitely get help. So all you technical folk out there that are, think you can do it all, take it from Stephanie and I, you can't. Doesn't mean you can't learn a little bit about each one, I think is, is a very valid point, but don't, don't try to do it all yourself. And I think the engineering mindset's all about problem solving, right? You know, it's like, if there's no problems to solve, then we don't have a job. And if we don't have a job, we get all freaked out. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, no, ah, we need problems to solve. So how did you then go about changing your mindset to go ask for help or some of these things that are, my guess is pretty tough to, pretty yeah, tough to give up. Yeah. And so I think like a lot of people, I had to learn some things the hard way. I had to launch a project, a product that completely crashed and burned. Uh, I remember I, I bought my first Facebook ads to kind of launch it out there. And I learned all the things about Facebook too, right? Because again, I was like, oh, I can figure it out myself. Um, I launched it. One person bought the thing and I ended up refunding their money because I'm like, well, I'm not creating this whole new thing because one person bought it. Um, and so I ended up needing to go through a year and a half almost two years of that struggle of, okay, well, I just need to know something else. I just need to learn this, this other thing. And that would solve the problem. And then when I got to the point where I'm like, okay, I have launched this business and it's not working. And I've exhausted everything. Like I've been following, you name it, guru on how to make an internet business work. Um, I have I have tapped my network. I have I have done everything I can that I think I can do by myself. It was at that point I'm like, okay, I need help because if I can't get this to work, I'm gonna need to go back and get, I'm gonna go in quotes, I know what no one can see me, a real job. Like I'm gonna have to go back to that environment I left. Right, and I'm like, right, right. no, I do not want to do that. I can make such a bigger impact on the world as an entrepreneur than I could possibly have working for someone else. And that's what drove me to start my business. And I kept on coming to back and saying, okay, I need to like throw my ego out the window here. And I need to find people, other entrepreneurs who have done this, who have experience in this, 
and I need to get their help. And then I also need to listen to them um, because I, I've also noticed in my own career uh, and, and in this career as coaching other people in STEM, a lot of us struggle with being coachable. We think we can figure it out ourselves. Oh, yeah. And that trends into every, everything. Oh. Okay, well, that strategy mm. won't work for us. And therefore, I'm not going to dive all in and actually listen because I think I know more. I think I can do it better. And, and again, those thoughts in and of themselves aren't bad. Like, I feel like the, the technical people I've talked to that have started their businesses, like we got the working hard hustle stuff down. We have no, like, like we, that's been our only experience all the way up through schooling, all the way up through starting our companies. And so no one needs to tell us to work hard. That's, that's not our problem. Our problems come with asking other people for help. Sometimes self-awareness around, I could do that, but that doesn't mean I should. So back to the asking people for help. Um, and the other one I've run into um, is significant challenges around money mindset. Mm. In that, mm. our, our background training is in all the constraints we have to work with, time, budget, uh, delivering things, you know, on time, under budget, all of the, yeah. all of Features, that stuff. Feature schedule budget. That was the yes. trifecta. Um, and so we struggle, and this directly translates to our ability to market and sell our products as well. Um, it starts with, okay, if you're constantly looking, uh, trying to be frugal, how do you price your stuff, right? Because you're going to tend to undervalue what you're doing. And then when it gets to marketing and sales, we run into this issue where, well, it's obvious to me the value this has in the world. I know how I would I would say that. And I'm going to make assumptions because a lot of us were um, our uh, earlier version of our ideal client. Like I've done this in my own business that, okay, like I was a working woman in engineering. I know exactly what all the pain points are. So I'm going to create all of my copy, all of my marketing, all of my sales just based on that. And skip the really important step of actually talking to potential customers. Um, and that also contributed to early product failures for me. Like I'm getting goosebumps. Because <laughs> it's like it's like this is exactly what I go through every day. Not every day. I'm better at it now. Um, but yeah, that whole coachable thing. I have seen that the one of, not the only, but one of the most important things when a, an entrepreneur gets into doing entrepreneurship is the ability to be coached. And you can tell, and especially for technical people, because technical people, as you mentioned, and I've gone through this too, and everyone I know that's got an engineering degree that think they can just like outwork it all, right? Oh, I'll solve the problem. I'll just work 15 hours a day, 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Nothing I can't do. Come on, I've invented stuff. I've got patents. Yep. I know what I'm doing, you know? Yep. Yeah, well, you probably don't know what you're doing when it comes to marketing, sales, especially sales, especially for technical people. It's challenge. I mean, I talk about it all the time. I'm in my own journey through entrepreneurship. That's my biggest, the next big nut for me to crack is trying to figure out how to do sales effectively. But this coachable thing, gosh, it's so important to have that mentality. And I'm curious, when you 
when you bounce against this or when you bump up against this with some of your clients and they're not coachable or they don't quite yet have the mindset of being coachable because they haven't get got hit in the head you know enough with the brick <laughs> or the sledgehammer right it's like yeah. how do you approach talking to them about maybe you should have a little bit of more of an open mind or whatever well first don't say that no <laughs> don't say if you if anyone has ever talked to any uh uh person and said maybe you should have a bit of an open mind that doesn't work for spouses it doesn't work for <laughs> family members yeah that's true oh yeah Ooh, yeah yeah that yeah yeah so true um but one thing uh, I talk about a lot is what I call the resistance. Um, in terms of if I, and I talk about this from my own frame point, in that when I'm running up against someone who is being resistant to coaching, um, what I find very effective is to either you know, ask them a lot of questions so they can come to their own aha. But then sometimes if, if I'm going down this route and I'm like, okay, clearly they're, they're not going to come to this realization on their own. I will share my personal story of how I dealt with this. And then I'll ask, what's coming up for you as I share that? Um, one of the things I found for myself is that when I experience resistance, when I'm being coached by my own coaches, because, well, entrepreneurial coach, career coach, or otherwise... Never trust the coach that doesn't have their own coach. Um, but when I experience that resistance with my own coach, having the awareness to pull back and say, okay, they said this, my instantaneous is, I don't want to do that. No, I have a better way. Um, sometimes it's fear, but often it doesn't come up for me as fear. It comes up more of a defensive pushback. I don't want to deal with this. You're wrong. I'm right. Sort of feeling. When I feel that, that tells me there is some sort of coaching related resistance, some sort of fear that I need to dig into and figure out. Often after I share a story similar to that, and then I turn around and say, okay, like I shared that. I said, I don't want to project onto you, but what's coming up for you as I shared my own experience? Does that resonate? Often the person will realize that, oh, I've been doing the exact same thing. Um, and so I've actually found a lot of power. Uh, and I get told this all the time in my own business um, that I say a lot of what other people would like to say if they weren't stuck in a position where they felt there would be too much backlash. You know, they're, they're working for someone else that they, they would love to be able to say some of this stuff. Um, and right. so uh, connecting with people through that story, mm-hmm. I think is one of the most effective ways, not just to help people get ahas relative to coaching, but to help people get ahas relative to your business, like marketing and sales stories are what I, for at least for me, the single most effective way to sell anything. No, no. I think that's been proven time and time again. I mean, I like I always say, reason you and I are talking over Zoom today is because our ancestors told the best story. We're alive because of stories. That's how we learn. That's how we do what we need to do in order to survive. And 
I love your comment about asking questions because one of the things I've had to learn the hard way, <laughs> like the real hard way, is never give advice, only ask questions. Or more importantly, I never give anyone advice until they've asked me like a dozen times almost, because I think you're right that the, the resistance is in, I am not going to listen to you because I feel defensive. I feel like literally, depending on the person, literally I'm pushing you away as a defense mechanism. And, you know, in, in therapy, cause I, you know, I do, I do weekly therapy for a lot of different reasons, but I started when, after Jane died, the, the therapist role, which I think is similar to a coach's role is to ask the questions so that you can figure out your own answers because you're right. As someone tells a story and you, and this is the reason why stories are so powerful. In fact, the more specific a story is, the more universal it becomes because people put themselves in your story. They see themselves in your story and a well-told story will resonate with them and they may or may not say it right away that, oh yeah, I've got a big ego or, oh yeah, you know, I'm resistant to this because of X, Y, Z. But the process of storytelling and asking questions for both coaching, entrepreneurs, relationships, just generally is the way to go. Because again, you're not putting, you're not judging their reality. You're trying to understand their reality. And so I'm curious because you deal a lot with women that your specialty is women in engineering and business. I'm curious, what are some of the barriers? What are some of the challenges and struggles that women in engineering and business face? And, you know, how should we kind of approach it? I know you've been doing some work with companies to sort of make it like, kind of like what, um, you know, uh, what is it called? Um, they have the inclusion, um, movement. Now they've got the corporate social responsibility movement, which is all about trying to be more inclusive. Right. Um, um, it may be referred to as Jedi. So justice, equity, diversity, yeah, and Jedi. inclusion. Yes. Um, yeah. And so that, that's an awesome question. Um, and, and one of the things uh, that's important here is seeing more diverse leaders. Um, I would say that that is how we fix this problem. Uh, and so then the question becomes, if more diverse leadership is how we create more you know, inclusive organizations that value individuals, not just, okay, what can you produce for me, right? How, how do you build your own pipeline? So, uh, for example, and and this is something I will actually I've gotten into arguments with. So I will I will share this with you. Um, we've seen a 65% increase in the last 10 years with uh, women, in particular, graduating with I'm going to go with engineering and computer science. We'll go with those degrees. 65% increase. That has not translated into that percentage of increase of women in leadership. So there's something going on here between like, we've done a really good job of helping get uh, more diverse women, minorities, uh, more diverse people into the pipeline at the beginning, and we're losing them. 
So one in four women, as opposed to one in 10 men, are dropping out after age 30. So let's think about that. They've already dedicated you know, X number of years to college, to um, going up through their careers. And sure, if they're leaving because they want to become entrepreneurs and change the world, awesome. But when I talk to a lot of women specifically about why did you start your own company, I get a very different answer often when I ask that question to men. Um, And for women, a lot of times it's a, I knew what I wanted to do. I got driven out of the corporate environment Um, or it's, I have a mission. So I fall into the, I have a mission category. Um, But often the reasons uh, are, are just different. Um, when I talk to men, it's much more often, I had this great product idea, I patented something. Uh, it, it's something along those lines. It's not a, I tried everything in corporate until it didn't work. And now I, I'm doing something else. Um, and so I think that the reason I see that, going back to your question, is that I think creating growth paths for everyone is critically important. And being you know, transparent about hiring practices, promotion practices, like if we're going to talk about the low hanging fruit that actually doesn't cost very much to make a change, though, those are where it's at. Um, and then, you know, cre- when I talk about creating a culture of trust, um, I mean, that's critically important for entrepreneurs, for corporate alike. And then really understanding kind of the the neuroscience. So I I come at a lot of what I do uh, from a combination of, you know, I started with the technical stuff. I realized that um, I'm an introvert. I was having difficulty talking to people. Then I dived into the neuroscience and realized, oh, yeah, here's why small talk works. Here's why you need to do small talk. (laughs) Here's how it kind of changes your brain. So then instead of being like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that networking thing, um, that, that was kind of my first a four-way into that. Um, and then how can we use all that to better retain and engage, specifically our women? But really, it's about all different identities because we are in an age where I think the statistic is like 85% of people working for someone else are actively disengaged with their work. Meaning they're there. Oh yeah, no, they are not not loving it. No, Um, no, no, not at all. No, that's that's yeah. You you actually you uh, they always say you quit your boss, you never quit the company. But then again, your company generated your boss, so. It's like, okay, it's two steps removed, but it's probably a cultural problem. You can see that. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was in the semiconductor business, the culture was so, you know, a type, a very much quote unquote, a meritocracy, but very, you know, male dominated, male driven. The meritocracy stuff was all bullshit. It wasn't, it was a mix of meritocracy politics and who, you know, who could work the hardest and burn out. I mean, i burned out off of it. I said, I can't do this anymore. This is insane. Um, so yeah, there has to be a, an acknowledgement, I think, of the different, um, the diversity of ideas, the diversity of people, and the diversity of needs of what people want to do. Not everyone wants to work 12, 15 hours a day. Like, right. you know, get a life, 
You know, like it was, again, it de- maybe it depends on how young you are. Sometimes the younger folk, they need to like, there's stuff you need to learn and you just need to learn it. But then that sets the tone for the rest of your life. And gosh, you know, if you want to have a family or you have other commitments and the expectation is, you know, life is work or work is your life, you're going to get pushed out, you know? Yeah. And let's talk a moment just about the leadership style stuff, because what we often see is that the people promoted into leadership positions, particularly if there's not a some transparency around growth and promotional paths within organizations, uh, tend to be the people that spoke up the most. Uh, and I think we've all been in a meeting, for example, where the person that spoke up the most, their idea was gone. We went with that idea, even though that wasn't the best idea. And I oh, see yeah, sometimes that's, that's this happening in leadership. Oh yeah. Because the person that kept on saying, "Oh, I want that leadership position. Oh, I want that leadership position." Um, from a, again, from the brain science standpoint, if you are currently in leadership position, you are more likely to resonate with someone that reminds you of you when you were younger. Um, and between that and this idea that in most organizations, people look up to the leaders and say, okay, they're the current leaders. I should emanate those behaviors if I want to get to leadership position. We have essentially created kind of this like self-fulfilling cycle where I have women telling me, oh, well, I have to act like the guys to get ahead. Mm-hmm. When in reality, like we need all sorts of leadership styles. Like it, some organizations really value what I call command and control, telling people what to do. But we yeah. also need the collaborative, empathetic. Um, there's actually a recent article, I think, in Forbes that said that empathy was recently found to be the single most valuable leadership skill. Uh, yeah, and I also yeah. think that ties back into ethics and and all of those things. Well, empathy and compassion. Yeah, about. for sure. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, and again, it, <laughs> I just... I'm just getting all these chills from remembering my time at Cypress Semiconductor, which I tell a lot of stories about that in my first book, but uh, the, the amount of craziness and I'm, and I'm not this, <laughs> the management style there was a mili- almost militaristic uh, driven by the CEO, TJ Rogers, who was just all about performance and no excuses and measure everything. And it was, it, it was trial by fire. It was one of those like life-changing experiences for me. Then I realized I never want to be at a company like that again. <laughs> because, I mean, that company was, I mean, he had some really, you know, TJ was decently progressive on some, some things. He was very, very generous, but you earned the generosity, but boy, man, like you either work there forever. <laughs> you lasted like three years or you were there for 20. <laughs> there was no in between, um, but it was great. I like still talk to some of those people, but it's just funny because some people just don't resonate with cultures like that. And I think if you want to build a company that stands the test of time and you want to have, and you're committed to diversity and inclusion and, you know, like uh, uh, as close to a meritocracy as you can, which 
is hard to do because we're all, we're messy humans. We're all emotional. Like you said, Oh, you remind me of me when I was young, you know, like all that sort of stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a paternalistic thing. It's also, you know, you want to help those that you feel you resonate with. And, And there's a bias there clearly, especially if you haven't grown up with different types of people, if you've not, if you're not, familiar, if you're not exposed to the diversity of the world, you just get in your little bubble. And as a manager or a boss or a leadership, you're even more in the bubble. Like people don't tell you the truth. You have no idea what's going on. You have no control, no idea. And the people that tell you the truth, you tend to be like, well, you're a negative Nelly. I I don't want to hear from you. Right. I mean, it's true. So we have to, you know, it's kind of crush all that, but I think I think the thing that that I really want to understand from you being the expert in this is, you know, how do we as, or I'm going to say as someone like me, who I, who I said, you know, the tall white guy with the beard, the dominant paradigm, the one that's in the majority of these leadership engineering venture. I mean, you name it, right? Like you just see a bunch of guys like me in vests, but I don't wear vests. I wear hoodies because I'm an operator and not an investor. <laughs> <laughs> what should we do to, to kind of like break how can we help more is, I guess, is what I'm trying yeah, to say. That's a great, great question. And I also, before I answer that question, I just want to go back to something you said a moment ago, um, talking about the bias, because I think part of the biggest problem is that we are unwilling to talk about that. We are unwilling to talk about the fact that we all have, I mean, I'm going to start with confirmation bias, um, that, that we all, like, I feel like all technical people and entrepreneurs need some training in psychology because we all have these biases we're all or at least i was in denial for a long time that i had them uh, and i give you a perfect example of this i had a coworker, a male bring in cookies to work one day and i told him thank these are great cookies thank you tell your wife thank you for making these cookies guess who had actually made those cookies <laughs> Him, Let me guess. Her. Yeah, yeah. You, that was kind of a leading story. Oh, yeah. Uh, I ruined but, the joke. I ruined the joke. No, sorry. Yeah. And so the, the question isn't, do you have bias? If you are a human, you have bias. The question is, how do we mitigate that in our decisions when it comes to companies so that we end up with a more diverse workforce, diverse leadership, all of those things. And so I feel like a lot of times we're just, again, asking the wrong question. You know, we talk about bias and everyone's like, okay, well, if I talk about this, I'm going to get accused of being racist or sexist. Yeah, Whatever yeah. it is, well, do you want to throw at it? I always say everyone, all of us have a little ist and ism in us. Um, I used to say we're all a little racist, but that always never flies very well. So I'm like, okay, we'll just call it istinism. You know, like, of course, <laughs> I have to watch my speech a little bit, but, but you're right. I mean, and I think this is the thing that I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. And before you answer that other question, I really want to dig into this a little bit, because this is a really important point. Just because you have a bias doesn't mean you're an evil person. You just have to understand that and try it's not perfect. We're not perfect. We all like, we got to give each other a break. We're trying to work through that and understand it. And this isn't like some, you know, touchy feely, you know, buzzword bingo-y, you know, kumbaya stuff that like, you really have to work at it because it's, it's going to make you just a better person 
And if you're a better person, then the world's going to be a better, better place. Right. And again, that's, so that's, I just wanted to bring that up. So go ahead. If you could answer. No, the other I, one, that'd be I completely too. appreciate that. Um, one of the ways I frame this, because I'm sure there's some people who are listening who are like, oh no, that is very kumbaya <laughs> um, The same way that we're like the laws of physics, we know they're E equals MC squared. Do we generally agree in, if you're in STEM, that that is a law? Well, guess what? Neuroscience, how our brains work, is actually a science. And yes, there's things in both of those areas that we still have to figure out, uh, but we know a ton about how the brain works you know, the art of persuasion, influence, all that stuff is based on actual science. Mm. Um, and so just kind of knowing enough about that um, helps us to be able to explore our biases more. But back to your question about um, how can leadership, particularly if you are, you know, in the majority and you're trying to help uh, gender uh, different identities you know, all those groups of people, what can you do? Um, so, you know, being willing to talk about it, being willing to try, because we're going to screw this up, right? Um, the ability to have those sorts of hard conversations and not avoid them. I think it goes a long, a long way here. Uh, but more practically, because I like to give people very practical things, um, mentorship and sponsorship is very, I mean, that, and that's something anyone can do, even if you aren't a leader yet. Um, you can amplify what you see the women and minorities in your organization do. Uh, and what do I mean by that? That means, okay, you see a coworker that did a great job. You can bring that up to the attention of other, of other people. Uh, because what we know is there is, there often tends to be backlash uh, when people other than white men, if I may be blunt here, um, self-promote. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and so you can do that by bringing awareness to what other people are doing. But when we look at mentoring and sponsorship, particularly, what I often see is that um, women get mentored on different subjects than the men do. So uh, there's been kind of a whole a group of uh, things about self-advocacy, speaking up, confidence, all of those things. Uh, and those definitely help you, particularly if you are in an individual contributor role, um, which none of our entrepreneurs should be in an individual contributor role. If you are, you're doing it wrong. Um, and if you're yes. in corporate, like that's really like when you're starting out, as mm -hmm. soon as you get to any position where you have to manage anyone else, you uh, the time has come to stop doing everything yourself and start enabling your people to produce results uh, through what you're doing. Uh, but what we found is that men are much more likely to get mentored on critical things required to get to middle management and executive roles, like business acumen, strategy, financials, state of the industry stuff, all of those things. Whereas the women in the middle seem to still get mentored on confidence and speaking up and all of these soft skills that while are very important, like I would also say that emotional intelligence is incredibly important um, for anyone, entrepreneur or, you know, executive in a company. Human. <laughs> right. If you're a human, I love that. That's awesome, right? uh, If you're a human, that is important. However, if you are trying to get to the upper echelons of your industry, if you're trying to get to a place where uh, you don't experience 
you don't cause other people to experience the same thing you did at the start of your career where you're like, okay, I'm looking at leadership and there's no one there that looks like me. Um, Or I'm looking at leadership and everyone looks like me, right? We got the two dichotomies there. Um, That is how we change it. And we change it through mentorship. We change it through sponsorship. We change it through being very transparent about here are what the growth paths are through our company. Here's what you need to do to get to that next level. And then making sure everyone has the training to be able to do that. Um, With my work, I'm not at all implying or stating that you, you know, people should be qualified to get to those positions. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think people, I'm glad you, I'm actually glad you brought that up because there's a lot of people that always say, well, we'll just have the best candidate wins. We're like, we're a meritocracy. Well, actually that's a bunch of bullshit um, because the standards are different for, for, for for the way people are, are, are evaluated. And I think once you hit the standard, honestly, Anyone that meets a standard that's qualified could do the job. There's no like magic that, oh, the best qualified candidate. No, you're just, that's just a cop out because you or your organization want to do some buzzword bingo speak where you think you're some meritocracy. You're absolutely not, 100% not. Because if people can make it over the standard, then, then any one of them can be successful. And you see this a lot in the military. You see this a lot in places where there's a performance standard and then above the, I mean, cause you know, you look at like the elite Navy SEALs or the special forces, you can't tell who's going to pass. You had, you just can't, there's a standard. And then over time you're like, well, I thought that person was going to do it. Well, clearly, wow. Why'd they drop out? You know, like, but there's a standard and you hold the standard, but once you're over the standard, everyone should be clearly, you know, equally, Rep, well, equally represented, but also have an equal opportunity. I think it's about the opportunity as opposed to the outcome, because what we've seen in a lot of these communities is like that I've done with, with the entrepreneurship, especially those in the impoverished areas. It's like they don't even have the opportunity, the education to actually take advantage of some things like they have to like get not in the don't like the outcome will never happen because the opportunity and the education is just not there. Like fix that first. And then let's see, like, to your point, we fixed the 65, you know, 65% of the people are getting into it, but okay. Now what's farther downstream. Well, what's broke now? Like there's something else broken. Right. Which I think is, is a great way to, to like, think about it because you got to get opportunity and education and then, okay, that's fixed. What's the next barrier? What's the next barrier? What's the next barrier? And yeah, we're going to screw some of right. this stuff up, but got to try. <laughs> yeah. And, and I could not agree more with the opportunity with the discussion that this is an opportunity issue. Um, because what I see over and over and over again is the opportunities that appear for those that are in majority power are not opportunities that appear for everyone else. Um, and so again, working hard is important. I also don't want anyone to leave this with thinking that working yeah, hard is not yeah. important. It is. There's a standard. Yeah, you have to hit the standard, right? But often, like when it comes to entrepreneurship in particular, there are lots of people who have never, who might be fabulous entrepreneurs who might create the next big thing. But they've never even been exposed to that as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, also, and I'm sure you've run into this too. Like so many entrepreneurs have at least one family member 
that is an entrepreneur. Or, like somewhere along the line, they were yeah. exposed to it. Or in like my case, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Like they're everywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's like you everywhere. were exposed to that. Yeah. A, yeah. Very young age. And what I find, um, actually last year, I ended up launching what I'm going to call a corporate escapee program um, <laughs> to help people launch their business. Because what I did is I launched my business while I was still working full time. Yep. Um, I am the weird entrepreneur that is super risk adverse. <laughs> no, so... that's no, don't say that because there's a <laughs> lot of people that do this. I tell, and I tell people, I say, do the side hustle. Yep. Like there, the, entrepreneurship is a risky endeavor. You have to get used to it. If you're from corporate and just like burn the boats and we're going for it, which is yeah, bad advice. That. That's 100% bad advice. Dumb. Like what, what was it? Elizabeth Holmes over at Theranos when she said that have only one plan, one, a, one number one priority, don't have plan B. That's the dumbest advice ever. I mean, that's just silly. You don't do that. Sorry, Tony Robbins. <laughs> We're calling you out on this Well, one. I mean, okay. But if you're, <laughs> I mean, the reason he says that, which I get, and I have a lot of respect for him because of what he's done. And I understand the mindset, right? Yep. Because what people do is that he, what he's trying to say is don't have excuses that you can jump out of what you really are going after when it gets hard. I get that. Have to, of course, put it in pop culture and, you know, make it in some sort of saccharine diet Coke kind of thing. Not that this saccharine diet Coke. I know a lot of people that love Tony Robbins. Again, a lot of respect for the guy. Look at what he's built. Um, But yeah, like. (laughs) <laughs> just yeah, just don't burn the boats if you've never done this before. That's a silly idea, but also have a goal to do a side hustle, etc. So yeah, yeah. And so, like I said, that's that's we I actually ended up creating a program that was in no way, shape, uh plan. That was when I learned to talk to my people before I started creating programs. Um, and I found out that, oh, well, I have a lot of people who are like, How can I do what you did? And so I'm like, okay, well. That, that's that's a fun thing to teach. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. yeah, and and so just looking at it from, you know, most people listening to this podcast already know entrepreneurship is for them. Like they're they're they know they know that. Um, but I would also say, like particularly for those that are starting out and are having all the doubts that are very very common to very going down real, this path. Very yes, exactly. Consider like go back to my discussion of the resistance. Mm-hmm. Consider why you're having those doubts. Are you having those doubts because you've been conditioned to think that the corporate career path is secure? And I can tell you, as can anyone who has lived through a major economic downturn, multiple economic downturns, even in STEM, because lots of us went into STEM because partially because someone told us you will always be able to find a job. It doesn't matter how technically brilliant you are if your whole company is downsized. the, the this idea that a job is some illusion of security um, is completely false. And and this is the one of the things I love most about entrepreneurship um, and why I I have three daughters. Uh, I have a 12-year-old. So I know you've talked about, <laughs> about kiddos before. Um, I will be encouraging them to consider an entrepreneurship route as a potential career path. Maybe not immediately, but but down the road, uh, because I believe that the only way to be in charge of your own destiny uh, and to be able to 
to use your unique gifts and talents in the world to impact the most people, which is again, like maybe that's not why you're an entrepreneur. That's why I am. So I'm talking to other people like me um, is to start your own business. You know, whether that is a side hustle, whether that is a nonprofit or a foundation, even um, I, I, I truly believe that in, in the current reality of the world um, that even if you're working for somebody else, you should have a side hustle. <laughs> Uh, because again, that that idea of security is only an illusion in your mind. That's a hundred percent true. Wow, Stephanie, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. This has just been such a great conversation. I really encourage everyone to go to Engineers Rising, especially you know if you're a woman business person or engineer that needs some mentorship and help, and of course get the book. She engineer. She engineers. Uh, she engineers. Um, it's just super important what you're doing. And, you know, we got a long way to go. We're going to make some mistakes along the way, but I think having conversations like this is important. And that's the reason why I do this show. Because again, if you want to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world, you got to educate and inspire the next generation of entrepreneur, no matter who they are. <laughs> so, Thanks again. Stay safe. And it was just such a pleasure talking to you. Appreciate the conversation, Jerry. Thanks again, Stephanie, for being on the show. Such a wonderful thing you're trying to do. Inspire the next generation of female engineers and entrepreneurs as well. As promised, here are the actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Stephanie. While working hard is obviously important, There's a time when you also need to start cultivating a different mindset than simply work harder. Stephanie learned that she needs to ask for help rather than trying to figure it all out on her own. So very common (laughs) as an engineer, I do the same thing, guilty as charged as well, want to figure it out on my own and not ask for help. Well, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to be even an executive or any kind of, you know, professional, got to ask for help. You got to know what you're good at. So I think the thing to ask in terms of a question is, what am I good at and what do I need help on? Cultivate skills in listening and self-awareness. Part of asking for help is also learning how to listen and become more self-aware of your biases as well as what your strengths and weaknesses are. So obviously ask yourself the question, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What do I need to work on? What are some of the biases I have coming into this situation? Sometimes you may not know, and it may need to be some reflection on your part. Um, and it's always important to reflect on, you know, what's going on, what's happening, you know, what you bring to the table. Sometimes that could be good things, bad things, but we all kind of show up with all the baggage dragging behind us. So the security of a corporate job is an illusion. The only way to truly be empowered is to find a way to use your own unique talents, whether it's through a side hustle, your own business, or your own foundation, or you know, even working for someone else, as long as that's what you want to do. So again, ask the question of, you know, what do I want to do with my career? What do I want to do for the rest of my quote unquote life? Although you don't have to do everything forever, but you know. What are, you know, and the other one is what are your unique talents? Like what are the talents that you offer the world? So 
uh, super important to understand that. So there you go. There you have it. Those are the actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Stephanie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.